John chapter 12 is where we will be this morning, picking up where um, I left off last week. And that would be John 12, picking up at verse 20, and we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 24 today. John 12, verses 20 through 24, let me read the scripture text. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's a great line, isn't it? Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But... If it dies, it produces much grain. He, I'm going to read through verse 26. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, Will honor. Now, as I mentioned last week, these are uh, this is the the Lord's enter had entered Jerusalem around the time of the Passover. If we keep reading, it looks like it hasn't actually started, but there was a period of time both before and after that thousands and thousands of people would have gone to the capital city of ancient Israel, uh, Jerusalem, at this time, and this is his last public. Ministry is public monologue, where he is the main speaker in this section, especially as we pick up in John chapter 13 through 16, which hopefully we'll get to next year. But John 12 brings us into this last week of the Lord Jesus' incarnate work, or sometimes called his mission on the earth. Jesus lived a long time ago. Uh, He lives now, by the way. Uh, But he lives a long time ago in an ancient context where the Jewish people at the time had these religious festivals because God in the Old Testament had revealed his will for them. And these festivals actually pointed to a greater work to be done by God through the Messiah in the future. Passover is the time of of year that that we are in engaged in, in this portion of John's gospel. Passover is for the people to recall when God passed over their homes because they had done what he said, put blood on the doors, and he didn't judge them. Instead, in the midst of judgment, he saved them, uh, the exodus out of Egyptian bondage. So people are here, uh, hundreds, thousands, and upon thousands are here, The last week of our Lord's time on the earth uh, is conducted here in Jerusalem. And so all these people are there. John 12 is then, uh, or therefore, a a transitional chapter from various public discourses by our Lord to his last public 
monologue and his preparation for death, for burial, and resurrection, and ascension, and current session at the right hand of majesty on high. Now, a monologue, I used a long word there, is when one person speaks to others. So we have a lot of red letters here if you have a red letter edition uh, New Testament. The focus in John 12, 1 through 11, is Mary's anointing of our Lord, preparation for some great work. The focus of John 12, 12 through 19, we looked at this last week, is our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem for the last time, and there's more preparation going on there as he sat on a donkey in fulfillment of an Old Testament passage in Zechariah as the people laid the palm leaves down. Our passage, verses 20 through 24, introduces us to our Lord's final public monologue. I don't know who it was, but somebody a long time ago said, you can, you can tell a lot about a person based on their, their, their last words. These are some of the last words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 20 through 22, I have a heading for this. I call it Introduction to Our Lord's Last Public Monologue. Profound, isn't it? Note with me the introduction to our Lord's last public monologue. Verses 20 through 22. Note, first of all, the entrance of Greeks. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. If you read the book of Acts, you know that there were some Greeks, proselytes, people who came from the non-Jewish world and followed the form of religion that the Jews were following. These seemed to be some of those people. These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir... We wish to see Jesus. I think some of you know. I don't know who it is. Some old preacher had somebody put that on his pulpit. Actually, I think I've preached at a church that has that on a five-by-three card or something. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Um, You should wish to see Jesus in the preaching every week. Uh, You know, do you want to see Moses? Moses would go, no. We want to see Jesus. So here are these non-Jews, Greeks. Where they're from, we don't know. I'll talk about that a little later. They're at the you know, right place at the right time, doing the right thing at that time of world history. And they want to see Jesus. Do you think when they said that, sirs, we wish to see Jesus, we want to see Jesus, they went, where'd that come from? I've never heard of this guy before. I don't think that's what's going on here. There's some knowledge, not only generically of Jesus, but in particular that causes them to say this. These certain Greeks came to Jerusalem for the Passover to worship. Jesus had just entered Jerusalem, and the entrance of these Gentiles on the scene triggers our Lord's response, beginning in verse 23, as we'll see in his response. Also note the words in 1219, the Pharisees therefore said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. 
And the next verse brings up the Greeks, right? The Gentiles, the world, non-Jews. By the way, the better you know the Old Testament, the more you realize, and if you don't realize this, I'll just tell you, in the prophets, the servant of the Lord has a remnant of those who believe upon him that surround him during his earthly ministry. And guess who, guess who else ends up getting attached to him? Greeks. Gentiles. The world. Now this is important. That the Pharisees recognize non-Jews are going after him. And then Gentiles, Greeks, enter into the conversation or the scene before us. Here's what... Uh, they, uh, here's what they said to Philip. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Here's what J.C. Ryle says about this. These Greeks sought to see Jesus at the very time the Jews sought to kill him. See, there's irony going on here, isn't there? The Pharisees are mad trying to kill him. And here's Greeks going, we want to see him. We want to, which means something like, you know, I hope to see you this week. Hopefully, we're going to have time together and we can talk. They got some questions. They want to know some things. They wanted to talk to our Lord. Why they went to Philip, one of the disciples, we're not told. Why'd they go to Philip? I don't know. It could be because Philip is a Greek name, um, though he was a Jew. Or because, as John tells us, Philip was from Bethsaida of Galilee. Maybe these Greeks, and there seems to have been at that time, Greeks living in that part of the ancient world, maybe these Greeks were from the same place Philip was from. Maybe they knew him. There's a lot of maybes. I don't know. There's no footnotes explaining why. But note, secondly, Philip's reaction. Philip came and told Andrew. Now, that's interesting, too. Why did he go tell Andrew? Sir, we wish to see Andrew. That's not what they said. We wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Why just Andrew? Could you see Matthew and John over there going, what about us? I don't think that's what's going on. We're actually not told why he went only to Andrew. But it's interesting. He went to another disciple, privately, it seems like, maybe because he knew something about what Jesus had already said that's not recorded in John's Gospel. But listen to Matthew 10, 5 through 6. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Remember Matthew 10? He's sending the disciples out. And do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus said that at one point during his earthly ministry. It's not time to go out to the Gentiles. So maybe Andrew's going, oh, Greeks want to see Jesus. Jesus told us, don't go out there and tell them about him. We're just supposed to minister to the Jews, at least first. 
So what is important is that Greeks, Gentiles are present and they want access to our Lord. We're not even told if they get it, by the way. Just just assume they did. Notice a third thing in verse 22. Andrew and Philip's reaction. Andrew and Philip came and they told Jesus. So there must have been some sort of consultation. Uh, Andrew maybe won the day or helped Philip think through the issues. They told our Lord that some Greeks want to see him. Again, it's important that Greeks want to see him and that they're here in this context. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But notice our Lord's response. By the way, if you read the older commentaries, which I do, they're all already saying something in their exposition that I haven't said yet. We should be thankful that Gentiles are in this text. It is a picture of the history of the church. To the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Read the book of Acts, what happens? Jerusalem, Samaria, ends of the earth. And that's all rooted in the promise of the Old Testament. But look at our Lord's response. He makes, he makes a monumental declaration, is what I'll call it. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Greeks came on the scene, sirs, we wish to see Jesus. Philip goes to Andrew, they go to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, oh, tell him to come here. He makes this, this monumental declaration. Uh, again, the older commentators, are, are, they're going, ah. At one point in his earthly ministry, don't go to the Greeks. Now, Greeks come for Passover. Jesus is there. They want to see him, and he makes this monumental declaration because the times have changed. At one point in his earthly ministry, we're focusing on the lost sheep of the house of Israel. At another point in his ministry, he opens the door up to the Gentiles. Again, the older commentators would say, methinks we should be very happy for that. So he makes this monumental declaration. We're not told whether the Greeks were present or not to hear it. My gut tells me they were. But we are told of the monumental declaration. And so we need to look at this because this is really uh, huge. Note the essence of this declaration. The hour has come. Now, Good readers of John are going, he, he said stuff like this before, right? He's never said the hour has come. But he's talked about this hour. It's the first time in John's gospel where our Lord says these exact words. He said similar words before, and we've looked at them. And John said similar words, wrote similar words about our Lord, that is, Something about his hour. Listen to this, John 2, 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. 
So whatever his hour refers to, he, early on in the Gospel of John, Jesus recognized that it had not come, but it was going to come. John 7.30, they were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. A little more information there. Wait a minute. So when his hour comes, men are going to lay hands on him? Yep. What are they going to do with him? They're going to kill him? Isn't that weird? You know, this time of year, Christmas, it's supposed to be a memorial once a year of the fact of the incarnation, the descent without movement, the the assumption of human flesh by God the Son. And we buy gifts and we give them away and we have big meals and all that stuff and we sing carols and all those things and I'm not judging whether that's good or right or wrong. I like to do a lot of that stuff, especially the eating of the food. But here we have this incarnate one and what did we do when God sent his only beloved son? We laid hands on him not to bless him but to curse and to kill. His hour had not yet come. John 8, 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, this is John, okay? So John's writing after the events, and he's saying his hour hadn't come yet. John 12, the hour has come. So this is a huge pivot in the Gospel of John. 13.1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I don't know about you, but the first time I read that, I'm going, that's good. Whatever that means, that's good. So now we have the hour has come. And in John 13, 1, the hour has come that he should depart out of this world to the Father. So that's that he should ascend back to heaven. Okay. John 17, 1. These things Jesus spoke and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that the Son may glorify thee. What does he mean by this? The hour has come. His hour could refer to a specific point during his earthly ministry, during his life on earth, as the Son of Man, uh, 60 minutes, an hour. This 60-minute period of time has come. Yeah, could mean that. Just because it could mean that doesn't mean it does mean that. I don't think it means that. This seems to be at least this much. This, because of all the previous mentions of this hour, it seems to be a climactic point, right? The hour has come, a climactic point in the ministry and mission of the incarnate Son of God, has now arrived. 
And it could be uh, the final act of his public ministry. But is that what it is referring to? Does the hour refer to a climactic point that is his death and his death alone? Now, if you keep reading, I already read John 17, the hour has come for, for the Son of Man to ascend to the Father. So there, the hour refers to the ascension. It doesn't refer to exclusively his death. The hour has come for my death. Well, we got to keep reading. Note the purpose of that which is declared. The hour has come for, so this climactic season for the Son of Man has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Either a point in time has arrived, though still in the future, as he's speaking these words, or the beginning of a period of time will soon arrive. Either the hour has come for me to die, or the hour has come for me to die, be buried, rise from the dead, ascend, and rule. Both are true, um, unless we say to the first thing, this monumental declaration has nothing to do with anything except his death and his death alone. I think that narrows it too much. Uh, if it refers to a point in time, it would refer to our Lord's death alone. If it refers to the beginning of a period of time that will soon arrive, it seems not to mean his death, at least exclusively. I say this because of John twelve sixteen. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, I don't think that refers to his death, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And John seven thirty nine. But this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so Jesus being glorified in those two texts isn't exclusively referring to his death and his death alone. Listen again to what he says. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, let's go put ourselves back there again. We're, we're observant. Let's just make ourselves Jews, and we're going, huh, Gentiles are here. They're talking to the disciples. Andrew and Philip are talking among themselves. They go to Jesus. They say something to him. The Greeks said to the disciples, to disciples uh, one disciple, we want, sir, we want to see Jesus. He goes to the other guy, they go to Jesus, and then Jesus says immediately after that, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Where did he get that title from? Did he just make it up? Um, no. Read the book. Read the Old Testament. 
Jesus used that title for himself a lot. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7. So again, we're Jews back at the Passover here when Jesus is there and the Greeks come in. They talk to the disciple. The disciples talk among themselves, the two. Then they go to Jesus. Then these words come out of his mouth. It's very interesting. The scene, God, I want you to lay hold of that. Jews and Greeks, probably in the temple precinct at the season where the Passover was to be remembered, and Jesus, hearing what Philip and Andrew told him, says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Hear these words from Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions. Okay, so this is a vision God gave to him. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The hour has come for that son of man to now to be glorified. Son of man figure in De- the son of man figure in Daniel's vision was given dominion glory and a kingdom upon his presentation before the ancient of days so this is looking forward actually to the ascension the coronation and the session of kingship by our Lord after his mission was completed. That's ultimately what this vision is looking at. But in order to get there in the current session, incarnation, sufferings, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, coronation, then session. So did you see the movement there? This is the... The incarnation is the descent of God to our sin-polluted world, assuming our nature to bring it back to God. God comes down, we get taken up. Because we're great people. I'm getting, I'm getting no's. No, because his mercy is great. The great, the great love with which he loved us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Note also that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Again, the vision is looking after the incarnation, after the sufferings, and at the glory of the Messiah. By the way, the New Testament connects the, the glory of the Messiah with resurrection, ascension, 
coronation session. The hour has come that the Son of Man be glorified in order that some from every language might serve him. So here we have Gentiles there. Jesus using the Son of Man language from Daniel 7. Jews there as well. And he, he, he says, now's my, my hour is here. He was given glory that all kinds of people might serve him. But this glory comes upon his presentation in heaven, upon his ascension. So we have to recall that Greeks or Gentiles are in this narrative. And calling himself son of man and referring to his glory seems to speak to the issue of Gentiles in the future all over the world serving him the fruit of his death. I think ultimately that's what he's referring to. We can't say, no, he's referring exclusively to his current session. Don't want to do that. He's referring exclusively to the coronation uh, at the right hand of the Father. Don't want to do that. He's referring exclusively to his ascension. Don't want to do that. He's referring exclusively to his resurrection. No. He's referring exclusively to his death. I think he's referring to all of those things. Since his ascension, some from many, many nations have come to know, love, and serve our Lord. So maybe, just maybe, we should keep reading, huh? Because maybe the next couple verses are going to help us, or at least the next verse, because he gives an explanatory explanation, explanatory illustration, excuse me. That would be like saying an illustrative illustration, Read the notes. An explanatory illustration. Now he's going to illustrate for the purpose of explaining the statement, the monumental statement that he just made. And here are the words. He says, truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, attention-getting device, listen to me. What I'm about to say is important, not that the other things weren't important, but he's going to help us try to connect dots here. I say to you. Now watch what he does here. He uses an illustration from nature. And again, you know illustrations. They're analogies. And so uh, there's correspondence, but there's discorrespondence, for lack of a better, better word, as well. Jesus isn't a literal grain of wheat. okay? But a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying does illustrate something about that monumental statement he just said, made, made. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, Grace Reformed Baptist Church, Antelope Valley, or whatever our last name is there, will exist. Um... I'm not going to name names, but I could. Of all the saints in our church. If it dies, it bears much fruit. You got saved sometime. 
you are fruit. What, am, am I a cherry or a pear? A le- is a lemon fruit? You know what I mean. See, so there's the analogy. You are, you are fruit, the effect of the gracious work of God by virtue of the merits of Christ wrought out for us on the earth a long time ago. These words of our Lord come on the heels of the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's why I labeled my point. He gives an explanatory illustration. The illustration from nature explains what it means for the Son of Man to be glorified. So note its opening formula. Truly, truly, I already said. Listen up. Note its essence. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. Remember, he's illustrating the meaning of the Son of Man to be glorified. It's an illustration. So, we should be careful not to push all the details of how seeds work back onto our Lord. You know, I didn't pull a... I didn't do a search. I don't think Jesus wants us to study seeds necessarily. He wants us to get the big picture. First, there's a, notice there's a condition here. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. And then secondly, notice there's an inference. It remains by itself. So if something doesn't fall into the earth and die, it's going to remain by itself alone. That is, a grain of wheat, a seed. It's just going to sit there. You know, if you had a pepper seed in your hand um, and you said, you know, I'm going to take this outside, put a little water on it, stick it under the sun. It's not going to happen, right? It's just going to sit there. It's going to remain alone. But if you plant it, the mystery of providence, it breaks its shell off and it starts growing sprouts and then pokes its nose up out of the ground at some point and if you fertilize it and water it properly and it gets sun it grows and and then it bears fruit right that's that's what it does um by the way did jesus ever illustrate the kingdom of god with something like this yes he did didn't he if you have a seed in your hand and you leave it in your hand it will not produce Fruit. I guess peppers wasn't a good illustration, was it? (laughs) Has to be planted into the earth's soil to begin the process of fruit bearing. Like this is like agronomy 101. If you keep it in your hand, it remains by itself alone. It does not bear fruit. That's what Jesus is saying. What do you think he's meaning by what he's saying? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be put in the earth. I'm going to bolt out of the grave. I'm going to bear a lot of fruit all over the world. In another sense, he's saying in 2,000 years from now, there are going to be churches all over the globe meeting, worshiping Christ, and one of them is going to happen to use the Trinity hymnal. 
Well, I have more to say, and I'm going to say more, but I'm going to bring some contemplations and then um, stop at some point. I want to keep going through the verse at some point today, either now or second service, because there is a contrast here as well. Remember I said, note first, um, it's opening formula, truly, truly. Note its essence, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself. There's also a contrast. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay? So on the one hand, he says, the seed isn't buried, it's not going to die and bear fruit. On the other hand, if it is all of that, it's going to bear fruit. Now, this statement, we'll look at the contrast later, but this statement, the hour has come. My hour has not come. Remember that? We read those verses before. And John said certain things didn't happen to him because his hour had not yet come. Now, our Lord, was our Lord a passive victim of circumstances during his life on the earth here? Or was he really in charge? He was in charge, wasn't he? My hour hasn't come. How do you know? Trust me. My hour has come. How do you know? Trust me. When his hour was not, he knew it. When his hour was arriving, he knew it. He was the one that was in charge of his time, uh, 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 of the time of his death. Not men. No man can take it from me. I give it up, and I'll I give it up, and I'll I'll take it back. John ten. The Lord was in charge of the Lord's death, not the Lord's enemies. This is, this is not like us. We don't say, my hour hasn't come yet. My hour hasn't come yet. My hour has come. How do you know? Just trust me. You don't know all circumstances. The hour has come for me to make a million dollars next week. Just trust me. That's, this is not anything close to that. This is the incarnate God, deity, veiled by this flesh, who's pronouncing to Jews and Gentiles, as far as we know they were there, that his hour had come to be glorified, to be made much of, to be changed, and be made much of, ultimately to be worshipped as the God-man mediator in heaven and upon earth. So this means our Lord was in charge. It's good that our Lord was in charge. Why would we call him our Lord if he wasn't? Oh, our Lord was just a small uh, lowercase l, and he um, got hoodwinked by the religious officials and 
So he just died a martyr's death. Poor guy. You know, some people view uh, the Gospels that way. Jesus just died a martyr's death. And you know what? We shouldn't feel sad for him because what a hero. What a, he was a good guy. He had a great cause. He loved everybody the same, and we should, we should do the same. He is our a great example. Be like him. What would Jesus do? He'd make a lot of money off trinkets, wouldn't he? No. My hour has come. This is what I came for. I came not only for my sufferings. By the way, his sufferings, things happened to him that he didn't deserve. Things came upon him that he didn't deserve all throughout his life. Sufferings is not just death on the cross. That's the, that's the pinnacle of it. But he suffered things. He had things happen to him that he shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened to him his entire life. And you know what he did about him? He got mad. And he kicked people in the shins. And he punched people. And he strangled some people. He sinned. He didn't sin at all. That's good news. He's not like us, right? People say stuff. People do stuff. What do we do? Well, if you're on the freeway and you don't like it, you either honk your horn, slow down in front of them. I've never done that. Flip them off. At least, if not with your finger, with your heart. Did people do stuff to Jesus that if they did the same thing to us, we would respond like him? No. We wouldn't respond like him. And the very fact that we wouldn't and don't per, uh, don't render unto God personal, perfect, perpetual obedience to his law the very fact that we don't do that means we're in big trouble and we better get some help that no man can give us. That, that's why Jesus came. That's the purpose of the incarnation is to assume our nature and assume our duties and assume our liabilities, our guilt. That's what he has done. So this monumental announcement that he makes is huge. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Who is the Son of Man? The one Daniel saw in the night vision. God gave Daniel this vision of the future, of the incarnate one, having done his work, ascending to heaven. I remember reading, I think it was John Owen one time, and he said, what would it have been like to be either an elect angel or a saint watching the incarnate Son of God upon his sufferings, upon his resurrection, ascending at some point. You, they would be consciously aware of it because by the time you see heavenly worship in the book of Revelation, 
Angels are worshiping God and the Lamb. By the way, elect angels believe in the incarnation of the Son of God. They're worshiping the incarnate Son of God in heaven. What would it have been like? We don't know. Um, Probably a little better than this sermon. Maybe a lot better. Monumental statement by our Lord. What do these words mean, though? But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Just think about that for a minute. So Jesus, when he's talking about the complex of events about to transpire, I think death, burial, resurrection, ascension, coronation session, probably concentrating mostly on his death resurrection. But when he does that, he uses an illustration from your garden, a mundane, common experience that most of us have had. Plant a seed, springs up, bears fruit. Does anybody else do that in the Bible? If he's talking about death resurrection... Does anybody else either talk about his death or his resurrection or both together as fruit? You remember what his resurrection is called in 1 Corinthians 15? The first fruits of a great harvest. You know what first fruits are? The assumption that there's second fruit. All within the period of one harvest. The Lord's resurrection is likened unto a harvest. If I don't die and I'm not going to bolt out of the grave and then produce fruit. But if I die, I'm going to have churches all over the world. And believers from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. I don't want to rain on my own parade, but it's, this, this analogy from nature is fascinating. And we'll see some more connections, Lord willing, in the next sermon. But for now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You hear the gospel message? It's for you. You're a sinner. All of us are sinners. We're guilty. We can't go back and clean it up. We can say all we want, and the future's going to be different. It's not going to be good enough. We need a Savior that both suffered for us and entered glory for us, that has authority to give promises and be true to his word. That's what we have in the incarnate Son of God. And if you are a believer, what should believers do? Pastor, could you just pray so we could sing? That's what we should do. We should, the pastor should pray so we can sing. So let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your grace, the unfathomable incarnation of the Son of God the sufferings of Christ, the glory, death, burial, 
resurrection, ascension, session, coronation, session and coming as well. Please help us to believe the gospel promise and those of us that have believed it to be more grateful and thankful for the Son of Man who died, who rose, who's bearing fruit in the salvation of sinners from all over the world. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.